Well, this morning we return to our study of the Gospel of John in chapter 18. Uh, it's a significant turning point in the narrative that John records for us. Uh, Jesus has been ministering for three years, spending time pouring his life, his wisdom into his disciples, performing miracles uh, throughout the, uh, the, the, uh, the area, the region, uh, teaching, uh, receiving questions, receiving followers, being rejected. Now, a week earlier, he had come into the uh, city of Jerusalem preparing for the Passover. Uh, only hours earlier, he had completed the Passover meal in which he institutes the Lord's table for the disciples who would come later. And now, from chapters 18 through 21, we hit the home stretch, which taken up to three years for the first 18 chapters. Uh, now, for the next couple of chapters, will take place in just a course of minutes or, and hours, and then a few weeks until the fullness completes. But we begin this, this time of year with uh, this study, looking intently into the fulfillment of the redemptive plan that God has given to us. And Lord willing, we'll go through this and be done by Easter uh, in terms of the John. Uh, would, at least that's the way it's scheduled. I don't know God's plans, if he plans for us to snow out or not, but uh, in any, in which case, uh, then that, uh, that will change. Uh, our passage this morning, uh, John 18, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, which refer to the prayer that he prayed in uh, in, ch in chapter 17. He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. 
Holy God, we do come to you uh, with amazement and awe uh, that uh, you uh, would speak to us and reveal to us not only who you are, uh, but what you have done, because that itself is amazing, uh, that you have called a people, chosen a people, redeemed a people uh, through the, the blood of your own son. And as we consider this word now, we pray that that awe would guide us, it would move us to open our minds and ears to hear what you have said, to he- listen to even these familiar words, and to see as with new eyes by the power of your Spirit. That we may recognize the love that you have for us, and love you therefore, in response, and all the more. Lord, may you be glorified not only by what we do, but even more by our affection and hearts. And that comes, we love, because you first loved us. Bless us in this time that we study your word. We pray in Christ. Amen. Recently, Carolyn and I went uh, and and we toured the Berkeley Plantation. We've been there several times before, several times when family members or friends come from out of town and we've run out of other things to do. We've gone up uh, and and toured that or one of the other plantations, but this time Carolyn's mother was in town for the holidays and she had not been to that plantation and so we went up and we took the tour uh, yet again. And one of the things that struck me or struck us both because Carolyn mentioned it as we were leaving is what a different experience it is each time that we go and have a different tour guide each time we go through uh, the plantation each time that we see it. I mean, the, the, the premises remain the same, uh, the history remains the same, but each tour guide not only brings uh, their own personality, but they bring their own insights and emphasis of what they believe is most important or uh, what they are most passionate about. And so you gain uh, just more and more information and a bigger picture of what happened historically in that place, even as you're looking at the architecture and, and the beauty of the grounds. But in one sense, it's the experience I want you to have this morning. It's the idea that even though something can be very familiar, as this story is probably for all of you here, certainly for most of you here, that depending on the tour guide, We are able to see things new or see things in a fresh way. Things maybe we've seen before but we haven't noticed. Things that will strike us in a way that have not struck us before. Giving us a more robust understanding and perspective, in this case, of the narrative of the arrests of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I use the analogy of a tour guide is because every one of the gospel writers records this incident. I mean, it's significant. It would be a pretty significant omission to to leave it out. Uh, The arrest of Jesus was fulfillment of of a prophecy. And every one of them speaks to it, but each one brings a different perspective. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, and some uh, scholars believe it's because Mark, who wrote the most succinctly, uh, he wrote his gospel first, and then the others did what my English professors in college told me I was not allowed to do, which is to use somebody else's source and just kind of elaborate, change some words, and, and give my own opinions, and then not cite them for that. I'm told that's called plagiarism. Um, but apparently God didn't mind when it comes to his redemptive purposes. But each of them still tells slightly different details 
of the same story. John tells the same story and gives significantly different details, leaving out some of the details that the other gospel writers give us, and then giving us insights that we might not have if it wasn't for God moving him to be at work within us. Now, in short, we, we know the essence of the story. If you've been in church at any length of time, if you've studied the Bible at all, you, you know this story, the story of Jesus' arrest. He took his disciples off to, the, uh, to, uh, to what's known as Gethsemane, which is not a detail that John gives us, but all the other gospel writers give us. He takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he spends some time praying. Again, another time of detail that John doesn't give us, but the other disciple, others write, write to us that there was a, a time of, of prayer uh, prior to the events that John records for us. And while they were there praying, Jesus notices a, a, an army, a band of people coming, and he goes out and he greets them. There's a, a brief exchange. There's a short skirmish. And in the end, Jesus gives himself up. He's arrested, as John tells us. He's bound and he's taken to, uh, the, to the high priest, or in this case, he's taken to the father-in-law of the high priest, um, who was apparently the, the real power, uh, the political power behind the, uh, the power at the time, where he awaited for only a short time before he endured a kangaroo court, convicted, sentenced to execution, executed by hanging on a cross until dead. This is probably about midnight, maybe somewhat after midnight in the scenes. He was, Jesus was dead only hours later, a night's sleep, very compacted time. In fact, the incidents that we read here take less time than it will take for us to explore them this morning. In fact, take about the amount of time that we spent singing praise to God after we heard and were reminded of his grace that comes to us because of what takes place here in the garden. We, we know those facts, and yet John gives us insights to some important information and significant symbolism that reminds us that God is in control and he is working out his purpose for the benefit of all who belong to him, including you and me. And as we look at this passage, I, I want us to see first that God is in control. It's evident in some examples here in, in the particular passage. Uh, we, we see in the passage itself, in Jesus um, in verse 4 says, knowing everything that was going to happen to him. So he was fully aware. Every action that he took was informed. Everything was intentional. And so one of the aspects of being in control is knowing what's going to happen and being able to react. Now, he's the one who plans all of history. He's the one that spoke all of creation into existence. Um, and therefore, there is a knowledge. Now, through his life, there has been evidence. Sometimes there has been limited understanding. There's things that he doesn't know, uh, but clearly in his divine nature, there's things that he knows. He knows fully is what we're told. Everything that was going to happen, this is what everything had been leading up to. And so everything he did was deliberate on that evening. And
And what we're reading that particular verse is as Jesus noticed that there was a, a band of people coming, you know, that, that were approaching him, uh, rather than waiting to see what was happening or knowing what was going to happen, rather than running and hiding and make it more difficult, he goes out and he greets the people who were coming to arrest him. I mean, Jesus seems to be the first one to notice, in part because he's the only one that knew anybody was coming. And he sees them coming and he takes his disciples and he walks toward them, kind of says, hey guys, what, you know, nice night. Who are you looking for? He takes the initiative. Awareness, initiative, are indicators of somebody who is in control of the situation. And then what is fascinating as we see this unfold is the exchange that is taking place between he and this group, led by Judas, the one who had been at the dinner with them, had been dismissed to go do what he was planning to do. And Judas is leading this, we're told, band of Roman soldiers and then officers, probably security officers from the temple, from the uh, Pharisees and the other religious leaders, uh, into the garden. Now, what really is amazing and something that I have difficulty picturing in my mind is, is really what's being described here. Because we're told that it's a, a band, it's the, the word that is used in the King James and here in the ESV, and, and sometimes it's a, a detachment, it's what some of your Bibles say, the NIV or uh, in the, uh, in the um, um, I think New King James uh, says detachment. But uh, the word there is, uh, is in relation to a Roman army, and it indicates one-tenth of a legion of a Roman army. And most scholars would say that a, a legion in Rome was between five and 6,000 soldiers. And so in, in my mind, whenever I picture this, maybe it's because of the movies I've seen on TV or, or whatever, the drawings or you know, the, the, the cards, I, you know, I picture here's Judas, here's a couple of the religious leaders, and then behind them, just to make sure that they had the muscle and the force they need, as you know, maybe a dozen, a couple dozen of soldiers. The reality is if you do the math and you take what, what he's saying here is there were quite possibly between five and 600 soldiers that were there that Jesus goes out and greets and saying, who are you looking for? Taking the initiative. Now, some scholars say that even though that's the actual number, uh, or, or, that this, that this, this word would be used a little bit loosely, but almost all scholars would say that there was at least 200 soldiers that were there with the religious leaders, some of the security guards from the temple, and then Judas, that Jesus goes out and greets, knowing exactly what they had on their mind. Jesus is in total control, and what would be frightening, he goes and embraces. But perhaps what is most intriguing to me is what happens next here. And we don't see it quite as easily in most of our translations because when Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I, I am he. Now, in some of your translations, your, the he will be italicized. And the reason it's italicized is because it's not there in the Greek. It's the implication. But when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' response, according to the Greek, is ego I me, which means they said, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am. 
declared himself to be Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And something in the way that he spoke it, the power, the reality, the revelation, it not only blew them away figuratively, but literally, because immediately upon him declaring, I am, we're told that they not only took a step back, but all of these soldiers, 500, 600 soldiers, the religious leaders, Judas, every one of them fell to the ground. Incredible demonstration of power. And so when we look at this particular passage and we see that God in the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is declaring himself to be God, I am, he is the one who is aware of all things. He takes the initiative to go greet these people who have evil intent. And then the power of God is displayed even simply through speaking and revealing his presence. And they are all knocked to the ground. God is in control. And then the passage really kind of gets a little humorous, at least in my mind as I look at this, because they, you know, they're kind of dusting themselves off and all of them are standing up. Imagine being a Roman soldier there and Jesus kind of says, now let's try this again. Who is it you're looking for? You know, I don't read that them standing up and saying, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I think it's more like, um, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he again says, ego, I mean, I am, but this time he lets them stand. It is an incredible picture that Jesus, our Lord, who is God in the flesh, who identifies himself as God, he is in control of the entire time of the entire situation. And this is an important thing for us to remember today and always. Because sometimes our lives and our world seem to be out of control. And sometimes we ask, and some of you are asking this question right now, where is God and what is God doing? And even if you're not asking this question now, it's a question that you will ask. We all ask those times that we all feel inclined to ask this question because it's a good question. Now, there's other of you that may want to ask the question but feel uncomfortable asking the question somehow seems inappropriate, but we see people that God has embraced, God has called, asking this question throughout Scripture. It is a good and it is an important question for us to ask, where is God and what is God doing? And I can't give you the specific answer for your circumstance or even what's going on in the world right now, but what we need to remind ourselves on is this unarguable fact that is demonstrated over and over again and illustrated for us in this particular passage is that God is in control and nothing can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. He's not only control of the, circumstance, the, the, the circumstances and the way that he interacts with people. We, we see really symbolically in this passage that John writes for us that God is in control even of the details. See, what is easy to overlook is the, the beginning of this passage that we see in verses 1 and verses 2. We're told that after Jesus had offered the high priestly prayer that we studied in, in John 17, that he took his disciples and the ESV says down into the Kidron Valley. Some of your translations say over the Kidron Brook or the Brook at Kidron. And some even say the, the Kidron River. There's a, there's a body of water at the, at the bottom of that valley. It's at the, at the foot of the, uh, of, the, of the Temple Mount. And then they crossed over that into a garden. And most scholars would say that it's not 
insignificant that Jesus took his disciples into the garden. And particularly the fact that John is the one who is pointing this out to us because John, if you remember from the very beginning, is taking us back to Genesis. The very beginning of John, what are the first things he says? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then the Word came and dwelt among us. We're going back to the very beginning of creation and now as Jesus is about to undo everything that had gone wrong in the garden. The first Adam in the sinning in the garden gets people kicked out of the garden. Jesus is demonstrating that as he's beginning to undo all that is gone, he begins the undoing in a garden. And even the body of water that they cross, this creek, this brook that is called Kidron, from which the valley gets his name. Kidron itself means murky. And part of the reason it's called Murky, the Murky Creek, is because it's not a particularly wide or deep creek. It's not really even a strong flowing creek, but you know, you've seen creeks that are like this, and when it's, it's not wide, it's not deep, it's, it's easy for it to be difficult to see, muddy. And that certainly is true of this body of water. But it's murky for another reason particularly the time of year that we have in our text. Each year during the Passover. Because in the temple when the Passover lambs are sacrificed, the slaughter, there's a drain that runs from the temple down into the Kidron Creek. And so all of the lambs that are sacrificed over a two-day period in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover, all of their blood runs down into this creek, which is ordinarily murky, but now is also consists of blood. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that that one year he went to observe the Passover and then record the events that in the year that he was there, that 256,000 lambs were slaughtered for the Passover. So you figure that the number was probably somewhat similar because he was close in time to Jesus and the blood of 250-some thousand lambs all draining into this one body of water. Jesus steps over with his disciples. It had to be quite a sobering thing, particularly for Jesus who knew what was coming that the Lamb of God who came to lay down his life to have his blood shed was stepping over, even though it was dark, this body of water that is flowing with the blood of the lambs that represent him. I have no other, no way to know what was going through our Lord's mind, but it, it really, that thing makes me kind of wonder if that wasn't part of the angst and the weight that he was feeling. Because we're told by the other gospel writers that before these events take place, and he tells them that his soul is heavy, even to the point that of death, he feels like death. And we're told that in, in that time that he was sweating blood. I mean, serious, serious weight upon him, and yet, this was his decision. He chose 
to go into the garden. He chose to cross over the brook. He could have gone anywhere. He chose to go to a place where he knew that Judas would know where to find him so that the people would come to get him. He's in control. And it's a reminder to us that no matter what's going on, no matter what a whirlwind you may be feeling right now because of circumstances in your life, God is in control, not only of the big picture, but even of the details themselves. God is in control, as this passage reminds us, and he's working out his purposes, and there's nothing, nothing that can stop his purposes, not even the plans of people, whether they're powerful or not. It's really kind of fascinating because God, in, in this here, we see a picture of what God does with evil in this world. And evil is here in this world. And evil is evident in this passage. But there is a sense in which God kind of uses it like judo. And Jesus is doing that here. He takes the the weight uh, and the momentum of all of the evil that is coming at him from those who oppose him. And then he uses it as a benefit for himself. He takes the, the weight of evil and then he turns it into something that is good. And that's what's taking place here. Because we see evil intent in two people. And yet, their evil that is perpetrated serves the very purpose of God, which is the good of all of those that God calls to himself. The first we see is in Judas. The one who, as John says, who betrayed Jesus. And in case we missed it, he says it again, even in this short passage. In fact, John doesn't seem to have ever gotten over that. He just, every time he mentions Judas, he refers to him as the one who betrayed him, at least at this point, because he got to that point in the narrative. If you go back, you see a lot of the time when Judas is mentioned, you would see, at least parenthetically, the one who would betray Jesus. This was a serious, serious thing, and, and perhaps all the more stunning because none of the disciples saw this coming. He spent three years with this guy. He had his peculiarities, as do we all. He seems like somebody who would probably gotten on my nerves because he was so focused so much on the money all the time. But, uh, but you know, he needed, they needed the treasurer, and he was the one. In fact, the, the fact that he was the treasurer was indication that they believed that he was reliable, trustworthy, responsible. There was nothing in him that would have given them any hint whatsoever that he didn't belong, that he really wasn't one of them. He was every bit like them. And so Judas becomes an incredibly perplexing figure because there's a complexity there. He looks and acts and says almost the same things that everyone who are the closest followers of Jesus, and yet his heart was never there. A.B. Bruce, who is an Australian scholar, writes in his um, really modern classic, The Training of the Twelve, he describes Judas in this way. The false disciple was a sentimental, plausible, self-deceived pietist who knew and approved the good, though not consciously practicing it. One who, in aesthetic feeling and intellect, had affinities for the noble and for the holy. In other words, he was drawn to that which was spiritual and, and that which is holy. While in his will and in his conduct, he was a slave of base, selfish passions. One who had one who in the, the last resources would always put himself uppermost, yet 
could zealously devote himself to well-doing when personal interests were not compromised. In short, Judas was what the Apostle James called a double-minded man. And it seems an apt description because as we get pictures of, of this guy and we wonder a lot about Judas, if we, if we think about that, is how could they not know? And if Jesus knew all things, how could he call him to be one of his disciples? And we don't know all the answers. What we do know is this, is that he was part of the redemptive plan. He fulfilled the prophecy that he would be, that the, the Messiah would be betrayed. But he also serves to show us the natural state of our own hearts and the temptation that all of us experience. Because double-mindedness comes natural to us even after we have been redeemed, even after we have been followers of Jesus Christ. As Bruce describes Judas, is he was very capable of doing good. Even if his heart wasn't necessarily in it. He was very wise, or at least very shrewd. And was capable of doing good, even while he was trying to figure out what's in it for me. He was able to honor the Lord. And at the same time, his primary purpose is... How can I get God to serve me, to serve my purposes? And when I think of Judas in this way, it's really quite uncomfortable. Because at any moment, on any day, with the wind blowing just the right way, that could be me. Judas is a revelation of the state of our own hearts because the natural within us that seeks us first, that wants the world to revolve around us, it is something that is not gone, but it's something that is dying because of what Christ has done that we are told to put to death. And for years I've remembered the, the words of a song that Michael Card's song says that was called Traitor's Look. And, and here's the lyrics of, of the verse. Now Judas, don't you come too close fear that I might see, that traitor's look upon your face might look too much like me. Because just like you, I've sold the Lord, and often for much less. I mean, he got a pretty good bag of money. And like a wretched traitor, I betrayed him with a kiss. And what Michael Card is describing metaphorically here is one thing, a detail that John isn't recording, but the other disciples do, is that somewhere in this exchange, when uh, Judas came before he asked who, who they were seeking, Judas came up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. It was a way of identifying who it is that they were looking for. And so out of his, the same mouth is one who would give praise and adoration and, and kind words to the Lord and then use those same lips to betray him. Every sin is a betrayal of God. Every sin is because we believe that whatever it is that we do that is contrary to how God has told us to live, 
is somehow better for us than the way God has told us to live. And even though we know that that is foolishness, that is a lie, and it doesn't work, it still has an appeal. It still has an attraction. It still has a power. And it draws every one of us into it. And when we engage, we become like traitors. Judas is a reflection of the reality of our hearts, particularly the hearts that are unregenerate, but it's an experience that we seem to carry even when we have become faithful in Christ. Both theologians use the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, meaning that here's the nature that we now have. We are simultaneously righteous, just, and sinners. And that's news to some of you. For some of you, it is news that there's a category for this because you know this is true in your heart and you try to conceal it because you just think it's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not the way it's supposed to be, it's just the way it is. And I hope there's a freedom for you in understanding that because this is the reason that it's revealed is this is our nature and this is why we needed what Jesus has come to do. And because of what he has done, you are free from the punishment, from the guilt, from the condemnation. You are free in your fellowship with God. Be honest. As Martin Luther once said, let your sins be great. And let God's grace be greater. And for others of you, the idea that we are both simultaneously saints and sinners is news because you think you don't have any sin. Now, there's very few people that are that obnoxious. And since we keep harping on the fact that we're all sinners here, most of the people who hear that, they don't come back a whole lot here. But anyway. But some of us kind of say we believe it, but it's hard to swallow. Because we think we're pretty good. So did Judas. And yet, the betrayal only set in motion, only continued the motion of what God was intending. Which is Jesus who would be arrested and would be tried and in the greatest act of injustice in all of history, would be convicted and condemned, executed and died. That was what set everybody free that has the heart that is like Judas for everyone who was to believe. The judo. Evil came at him. Jesus didn't just sidestep it. He embraced it, turns, and then used it to come back and he died, and then he came back, and he said, that's free. We see the same thing illustrated later on. It's just kind of mentioned at the end of the passage, after he was arrested and he was taken, we see another example of evil that was part of this plan. When they took Jesus after he was arrested, they took him to Annas, and then he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Uh, but then we're told Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, he was the one who was consorting with everybody, and they were saying, what are we going to do about this Jesus problem? And then he gave the pragmatic answer of a respected worldly leader. You know what? This is just getting out of control. We need to do something. In fact, is, you know, whether it's right or not, it really doesn't matter, but it's better that one guy die than we keep living like this. Let him die, and then we can live in peace. What an incredible paradox of somebody who meant evil but was so right and didn't even know it. What he meant was, 
Let's just put him out of our misery. And so let's just go ahead and kill him. And what God meant was, go ahead and kill him so that my people will be out of their misery. Jesus sidesteps and uses Judah. And it is a reminder to us, it's illustration of what permeates the scriptural passages, is that God who is in control is working out his purpose. Nothing can stop his purpose. And as Paul reminds us, God is working out all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to God's purpose. And so we are reminded here of God being sovereign. God being at work. God working for our good. And even the evil that we see in this world can't stop him, and somehow he will use for your good. Whatever it is that you're experiencing, it's not out of God's control. And even if it begins and and has some thorns in it, by faith in him, ultimately, it will bloom like a rose. Now, I've neglected one other figure here that really stands very significant. And I'm just going to touch on it for a moment, but it's Peter. And, And Peter teaches us something else here that is still related. It's related to God's working out everything according to, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. But I think we learn a, a, a distinct message here, and I would label it this way, is that religion is no substitute for grace that comes by faith. Again, most of us know the story, and Peter gets a lot of criticism for, you know, I, I, it's got to be the worst 12-hour period of his life. Um, you get to remember before, he's the one who said, look, even if everybody else betrays you, I'll never betray you. I'll never deny you, Lord. And then we recognize the fear that comes in the hours after Jesus' arrest. Three times as Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him. And the last one was a little servant girl, meaning she was a slave, meaning she had no power whatsoever. And she wasn't even a mature woman who would have given demonstration that she had wisdom of value. She was, you know, 12-year-old girl, 11-year-old girl in that culture that didn't take women seriously. And she comes and points at him. And he's afraid to be exposed by her. And everybody speaks about his cowardice. I think it's also important that we recognize that the same person who was afraid of that slave girl, he knocked, lopped off the ear, made uh, the guy uh, uh, pose for a Vincent van Gogh picture um, with 600 soldiers armed and intense standing around. I mean, granted, it was probably out of frustration, but you know, it wasn't that he wasn't aware that those soldiers were there and, had, and that they, they would do harm. I mean, he, he, he physically harmed a, an official servant. I mean, it usually is not a, a good thing, at least in the eyes of the officials. And I've got to confess, I, even though I know it's wrong, I am inclined to just love what Peter does here. There's just something in me that says, I'm glad somebody got a, a good shot in for the good guys. I mean, it's just... The other disciple, other gospel writers tell us, you know, Jesus picks the ear up, pops it back on, and then turns to Peter and corrects him. John records the correction. 
And Jesus says to Peter in verse 11, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Religion is rooted in our actions. It is what we do and what we don't do for God. Christianity is rooted in the gospel, which is the good news of what God has done for us. And even though Peter knew Jesus intimately, and Jesus was the one to, and Peter was the one to confess that Jesus was the Messiah, that it was sent to free God's people. At this point, he still didn't get that first and foremost is we need to receive grace from God. Jesus had told them, and they didn't get it, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. That's first and foremost. And when we live our lives thinking that what is most important is what we do for God, and we either overlook or subordinate what God does for us, we are in dangerous spiritual ground. At the very least, what we're saying is, well, that may be your purpose, Jesus, but your purpose is not my purpose, and your purpose must be subordinated to my purpose. That starts to sound familiar. That was the attitude of Judas. Peter, in his passion for Jesus, his love for Jesus, on behalf of Jesus rather than recognizing that he is still in need of Jesus. And part of his confusion and the frustration that ensues, which largely led to his denials, because it had to be an upside-down world for him, was that he misunderstood that our responsibility is to find our story, our lives, in line with God's purpose, not try to get God in line with our purposes. Peter had this idea of the way the kingdom ought to work, and if Jesus was arrested, if Jesus was killed, if Jesus died, it wasn't going to happen. And so he needed to manifest something. He needed to act. He didn't understand, even though he had been told in advance, but really how could he? And Jesus yet again reminds him, look, what you're trying to do even when you tried to do before, when I said I was going to die and you said it's not going to happen and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter's trying to stop the essential nature, the message of Christianity, which is Jesus saying, I need to drink this cup, which is death. Because that is the essence. And, and we need to recognize that too. That is the, the foundation for our faith. And I believe that a lot of our frustrations, spiritual frustrations, spiritual depression, spiritual disappointments come from the fact that no matter what our doctrine says, emotionally, we keep trying to get God on board with our plan. And when he doesn't act according to our plan, we're disappointed, we're angry, we're frustrated, we're confused. Not everything that we're supposed to do is clearly spelled out for us. There are principles, but part of it is in our communion with God. We understand God has a plan. It's been revealed through the scripture, the creation, the fall, redemption, restoration. We're at the point that redemption has been accomplished. Now it's being applied, and the restoration, depending on where you come from, is either in process or it's going to come at some point later. But we are part of that. We are the beneficiaries of that. But part of the way we do that is to accept and remind ourselves of the cup that Jesus drank purpose for which he'd come, 
The reason that he took the initiative to give himself up so that he would lay his life down because nobody took it from him. His story is important for us as a foundation. It's not just the ABCs. This is not just a basic. It's something that we need to come back and remind ourselves, whether it's the illustrations or the anecdotes, but the fundamental fact that God who created all things is still in control no matter what it looks like. He's working out everything, and he did so through the very plan that he laid out that was revealed in the, uh, as soon as the people were removed, uh, our first parents were removed from the garden. And it would be through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his death in our place, his death that bore our sin, his death that paid our penalty. So when we look at this passage this morning, we don't remember anything else, we need to remember this, that though this arrest was the end of his freedom, this arrest was the beginning of ours. Father, we pray that you would set us free, for you have set us free in Christ, and freedom, it's for freedom that you have set us free. Lord, let us feel the reality of the freedom that is secured by Christ and respond to you as one who loved us and who has set us free at the price of his own life. May that be foundational. May that be central. May that be the object of our attention and focus. Because that reality is our hope, our security, and reveals your glory to us. We pray. Amen.